Hey, Nick, can I ask you one more favor? Will you cycle the heater back to being on? I should have worn a sweatshirt. Now I'm cold, now that I'm up here. Um, good morning, everyone. I am glad to see you all as we continue our series that we've called Jesus and Impossible Cases. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and Mark intentionally organizes four different stories of Jesus doing things that are just off the charts, of entering into circumstances that seem out of bounds, uh, untouchable, uh, unsurmountable, and Jesus shows up and things change. And so in the first story we saw as, uh, as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat and a storm comes up and it's so significant that these grade A level 75 fishermen are, are freaked out and they're bailing out the boat because the waves are coming over the side and they wake Jesus up because it, they need at least one more set of hands or they're going to die. Uh, and Jesus just calms the storm at a word. Uh, last week, we looked at, uh, at Jesus dealing with a man who was so demonically possessed he had been given up on by society, was living in a cemetery, um, couldn't even be restrained for his own protection or for the protection of others, um, and Jesus brings total peace to this man's life. This morning, we're going to look at impossible cases in the medical field uh, in terms of health. We're going to look at two uh, women uh, a woman who has a, uh, a hemorrhage, a flow of blood, um, as well as a young girl who is on her deathbed, and we'll see as Jesus enters into these. You know, I, I reflect on this all the time, but when you're a child, um, health and medicine and the medical world, you see, it seems like a, a relatively simple science, okay? You get a diagnosis, the diagnosis comes with a medicine as a solution. You take the medicine, you're better. And I've realized how utterly complex these things are as I've gotten older, how different one prognosis to another is depending on the person, how much uh, everything that goes into your life changes if medicine is effective, how very little we know and how low those effectiveness ranks can be for medicine that we uh, prescribe. Uh, and then, of course, the ever-present constant reality of things like cancer, which we're still trying to get a handle on, we're still trying to figure out. For many of us in our own lives, in the lives of our friends and family, uh, it is medical issues that have taught us about human limitation, that have reminded us of the fact that we are mortal and relatively fragile. Many of us, it has been these things that even if you're not um, God-oriented in your usual life. Even if you don't really believe in God, you don't want anything to do with God, wherever you're at, these are the things that drive us to our knees. These are the things that go, well, if there is a God, then I should at least try and pray because there is nothing else to be done. Those are the circumstances that both Jairus, this man who comes on, uh, on behalf of his daughter, uh, as well as this unnamed woman uh, in Mark chapter 5, that's their circumstances this morning. It should feel close. It should feel comparable to things in your own life. If you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, in the pew in front of you, the black-bound hardcover books are ESV Bibles. Uh, there's an, <coughs> excuse me, an index right up front. And you can use that index to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. 
And again, we're going to be in chapter 5. Picking up here in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, <coughs> lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they all laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, maybe not many of us have ever been caught in an act of nature so severe we questioned our safety. Maybe many of us have never been around a, a case of demonic possession that was so striking it seemed uh, like a lost cause, but all of us have been touched by the reality of death, by the fragility of health. All of us have tasted these things, and we desire, Lord, to understand who Jesus is in the context of our human frailty and so I pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit this morning, and as we reflect on this text together, Lord, um, that we would see how great and how worthy and how good you are. I ask that you would answer our prayers this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want you to notice this morning that these two accounts are interwoven. In fact, this story is recorded for us in Matthew and Luke, as well as in Mark, and in all three places we find the story of Jairus interrupted by this woman. It's of especial significance in Mark, though, because Mark has a literary technique habit. He has a way of writing uh, (coughs) that we've actually named after Mark. We call it a Markan sandwich, okay? And this happens many, many times in the gospel, and here's how they work. Mark takes two very similar pieces, a beginning and an end, and he puts a completely different middle in the center. And so there's the bread, and then there's the meat. And just like meat being, sorry vegetarians, the most important part of a sandwich, uh, in a Markan sandwich, it's the center that unlocks the rest. Now, in most of Mark's accounts, they don't involve a single interwoven narrative like this one does. Most of the time, he's selected things and put them together, juxtaposed them to make a point. But here, Mark sees in what happens, in the historical account that he gives us, um, this significant happening in the middle. And let's just lay out how significant this is, okay? We may read about this woman just sneaking up in the crowd and touching Jesus as just being another happening. I promise you, wholeheartedly, that's not how Jairus felt about this. Jairus comes desperate and in a hurry because his daughter is at death's door and the crowds are slowing Jesus down and he's moving through the, you know, the Middle Eastern marketplace and then suddenly he stops because he wants to know who touched him. By the time the account with the woman ends, Jairus gets words that it's too late for his daughter. Okay? These stories are interwoven. There's an intent to them. Mark is drawing out something significant, putting us in Jairus' shoes. And I'd like to do the same thing for us this morning. And so notice, (coughs) Jesus crosses the sea again. He comes back to the, sorry, I always have to do this, the Mediterranean side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so that would be the west coast uh, where, where Tiberias is today, if you go to visit Um, he comes back to that side and as is always the case people know where Jesus is going to be they keep track of his itinerary and so he pulls into a crowded coast and there's all these people who want to see Jesus there's all these people who want to hear Jesus be touched by Jesus be healed by Jesus and a man comes by the name of Jairus and it tells us in verse 22 that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue A synagogue is a local Jewish place of worship, and the rulers were uh, basically older constituents of the congregation who appointed people for the regular reading, uh, who made sure that there was uh, copies of the scriptures in-house for the whole synagogue. They were facilitators of Jewish worship. Um, The Jews didn't have pastors like we do. Uh, everybody, all the el- uh, elderly men in the congregation shared the responsibilities of reading and teaching, etc. But the ruler of the synagogue, he was the administrator. Okay? It was a <coughs> significant and respectable position. Uh, it's also interesting because if you've been reading with us in Mark, uh, Jesus's reputation with synagogue leaders uh, has been a little bit suspect. Okay? Uh, In fact, we saw a while ago when a constituency is dispatched from Jerusalem to basically vet Jesus 
on behalf of all the local and backwater synagogues, okay? The central powerhouse of Jewish religion sends representatives to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Um, and so here, Jairus' coming is pretty surprising. Uh, in fact, notice what happens here. It says that he came and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Okay. Now, I will tell you honestly, in 35 years of life, I have never had anyone fall at my feet. Reflect on your own life. On any occasion, have you ever been reduced to your knees in the presence of someone else? You know, Honestly, the only reference point I can think of in the modern world is like Wayne's World before Alice Cooper. Right? That's, that's it. It's just not a thing we do. And what I want you to understand this morning is it's really not a thing you do in the ancient world as well. This is way beyond respect and honor. G Jairus falls at his feet because his knees give way and he's desperate, okay? Now, I actually do have a touch point for that. And to be fair or to be honest, I'm not sure how this story is going to go as my oldest son, Logan, is in the front row. And I've never told this story with him being in the front row before. Uh, but when, when my wife gave birth to Logan, uh, it was our first child. Uh, it was our first time being in the hospital, and while they were prepping Brittany for delivery, uh, she started to freak out. Originally, we thought it was an, al an allergy to the lidocaine, but it was actually just stress. And so her blood pressure dropped, and they lost Logan's heartbeat. And so they rolled her over, they looked for it again, they couldn't find it. The, uh, the operating floor that was in the paternity ward was in use. And so they couldn't just move my wife to the next room. They took her on her bed as she was and rushed her to the OR where I wasn't allowed to go. Okay. Then they performed a crash cesarean, okay, which means they put my wife under and cut her open. In fact, the doctor worked so quickly that when, uh, I guess you already know Logan survived, so I'm not spoiling the story. But when they brought Logan to me, he had a small cut on his forehead because she'd been that quick getting at him. Okay. Um, so here's what it was like for me. For, for my wife, it was terrible, okay? Because she went under in all of that emotional stress, and when she woke up, all of that was there, and you know, there was no child there. She was still in the OR and recovery. Um, it, was, it was a really hard first pregnancy. But for me, what happened was the doctors, the nurses, my wife, and the fate of my child and wife all went out the door, and I was left standing alone in this room. And I just collapsed. I had no idea what to do. And I just started praying so intensely that God would save my wife and my child. Uh, and, and I'll tell you honestly, Jesus showed up in that moment so much that by the time the social worker they sent to the room to help me, which I was greatly appreciative of, but by the time she came, I didn't need her. I was up, I was content, and I just said, look, I love that you came, but I'm okay. Go help someone else. And then a few minutes later, they handed me Logan. Have you been in those places? That's Jairus' place this morning. He's on his knees because he's desperate, and this is not just some long-distance prayer request that he read on print. This is his only daughter, the 12-year-old love of his life who is literally dying at home. And so he implores Jesus. Whatever he thinks about Jesus, whether he's pro-Jesus or against Jesus, this drives him to the feet of Jesus because he's desperate. It says in verse 23, he implored him earnestly saying, and hear, hear the tenderness in his voice here. 
My little daughter is at the point of death. And then he says, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He says, just come, just touch her, just pray for her, and I know that she'll be healed. And notice verse 24, he went with him. Jesus is fully willing, he's fully on track, he responds to this, and they're on their way. But remember, Jairus doesn't approach Jesus in some private place, he doesn't call him up at his office, right? This is in the midst of a crowd, and that entire crowd now becomes this parade as it always was with Jesus. In fact, they, uh, <coughs> they, it says in verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Okay. They're bumping against him. They're all trying to get a look. They're probably yelling and talking with him and pulling him aside and, and these types of things. And so all of this is going on and they're waking, making their way slowly to Jairus' house. In verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, okay? And so here comes this woman. Now, I want you to notice the woman's approach is very different than Jairus's. She doesn't come up and make herself known. She still believes that Jesus is the solution to her problems, but she basically attempts a sneak attack here. She wants a quiet healing and then to escape out the back door. The difference between her need and the need of Jairus' daughter is because it involves a flow of blood, it renders her ceremonially unclean. Now, if you read the book of Leviticus uh, in these places, a lot of times we don't understand the idea of clean and unclean. Uh, this is not a moral category like righteous and sinful. It's a ritual category. What it defines is who can be in the presence of the temple, okay? If you open up to the very beginning of Leviticus and then turn back a page to Exodus, they set up this tabernacle, they start worship, and not even Moses himself can enter in. Okay? And so Leviticus lays out how is it that a sinful people can survive the living and holy God dwelling in the midst. It's a unique circumstance, not one that you find in other places or in other times. And so the ritual code is about human safety. Okay? but it also involves, of course, stigma and shame. You see, the problem is for this woman, because she had this perpetual flow of blood, she couldn't go to the temple at all. This is 12 years of her life that she's been hemorrhaging blood, completely cut off from the sacrifices and the worship of God. She couldn't come to the synagogue, completely come off, cut off from her local congregation. In fact, anyone who touched her would be rendered unclean themselves. Now remember, that's a ritual category. The Jews have an app for that. Okay? But, as you can imagine, people would avoid her. They would keep their distance. She knows that, but she needs to touch Jesus. If I can only, I'll just touch the hem of his garment. If I can just get close enough, I know that I'll be healed. But she would also render Jesus unclean. In fact, if it was known why she was there in this crowd of people who were bumping and uh, and touching one another, she's, she's causing them all to be unclean, okay? She's afraid of what Jesus will think of personal contact with her. Now, that may seem tremendously distant, but we still have medical conditions that come with shame and stigma, don't we? We still have those places where, um, where people, for example, in, in cases of mental illness or HIV and AIDS, 
where it will distance you from your community, where it cuts you off. Uh, This woman is desperate for healing, but afraid. She's totally convinced that Jesus can heal her, but she's afraid of what Jesus would think of her. And so she's pressing in the crowd, and all she wants is just, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just get close enough to just touch him, and then I'll just disappear in the crowd. And amazingly here, notice verse 29, she does so, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This is a pretty unique healing in the Gospels. Jesus isn't asked. Jesus isn't active. The woman is active. In fact, to some degree here, Jesus plays it off like he's not even aware. He's aware that something just happened, but he stops and he asks, who touched me? Right? It's such a different thing. In fact, it could uh, render for us uh, some sort of superstitious understanding of what's going on. In fact, every once in a while, people will critique this woman for being superstitious, that she thought that Jesus had somehow magic garments. That's not the idea at all. But the idea is also not that Jesus' body or his clothing had healing properties, and if you only touched, what happens here is a point of contact. It's a touch point, right? Jairus has one too. What's Jairus' point of contact? He says, Jesus, if you will just come and lay hands on her, she will be well. Jesus does a similar, uh, a similar healing in a similar area, this time for a centurion's child. Okay? So not a Jewish respected person, but a Roman guard posted by the empire in Jerusalem. But he has a good reputation with the Jews. And so the Jews implore Jesus on his behalf and they say, this guy paid for us to build a synagogue. And he comes to Jesus and he says, look, you shouldn't come into my house. It's a Gentile space. I'm not worthy to host you in my home, but I know if you just say the word, my child will be made well. And Jesus is struck by this man's faith. He points it out to the crowds. Okay? Every one of them has a point of contact. This woman has plenty of ignorance in who Jesus is. As we'll see in just a minute, Jesus is going to clear some of that up. But she knows that Jesus is powerful to heal. And so it involves that touch point. You know, this is one of the reasons why we have to bring our needs before other Christians and receive prayer. Why can't you just quietly pray for your struggles and for your pains and for your medical conditions, some of which might be embarrassing by yourself? Can God heal you? Of course he does, and sometimes, or of course he can, and sometimes he does. But the tangibility and the happening that goes on a calendar that's an event where you show up where somebody lays their hands on you and prays for you often provides a point of contact okay this is why i would encourage you if whatever you're going through to make use of those who always sit up front here after the service and are available for prayer not only does jesus promise that prayer is more powerful when it's prayed together when we collectively pray together, uh, but also it provides a place where faith touches power. And this woman understands that. She has that, but she has all of this stigma, so she's trying to do it quietly. Now, notice what happens, uh, verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? 
Now, it's possible here that Jesus understands what's going on, but in a limited sense, okay? Uh, I've heard preachers suggest that maybe this is a healing that God the Father does through Jesus, and Jesus doesn't do directly. That's fine. I don't really care, okay? But what I do want you to notice here is that the reason Jesus outs this woman, because that's what he's doing, right? He doesn't let her get away with it, is not to solve his own curiosity. Jesus doesn't ask, who touched me, uh, for any reason uh, that has to do with himself and his own need for knowledge. In fact, I would suggest to you, in fact, notice what it says here. Um, It says, uh, Jesus, perceiving in himself, verse 30, that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around me, and yet you say, who touched me? Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. Okay. He's looking for someone in particular. But here's the thing. Consider how the woman feels about this. This is a covert operation. She's trying to quietly get what she needs and get out. She's trying to not be recognized in the midst of this crowd. Okay. Uh, her condition is a long-standing one. It's drained her finances. She's gone to doctors, and all of that's made it worse. This is probably not a very private thing. This is the type of thing where you go, did you hear about Mary? Right? She's known, and so she's trying to do this quietly, and then her worst-case scenario comes true. And notice what it says here. It says, verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Why is she so afraid? She's afraid of what Jesus will think. She's afraid of outing this whole reality of what she's just just done. She's not coming here rejoicing and saying, you've healed me. Her fear trumps that because she's afraid of what's going to happen next. But she comes trembling, she falls down before him, and she told him the whole truth. Again, the good question to ask is why? Why does Jesus put this woman through this? Why does he drag her out into public and make her tell the entire crowd Why does he do this while he's on mission to Jairus' house? Why is this worth doing now? There's two things that I would suggest to you this morning. First off, this woman is going to continue to carry her stigma and her shame, at least with Jesus, right? Why doesn't she ask Jesus for help? because it would involve his touch. And then deceptively, she sneaks in and she touches him. She renders him ritually unclean. She needs to know, not just that she's healed, but how Jesus feels about her. In fact, notice how he answers. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter. Okay, think about this again. This woman, because of her condition, is completely on the outside. She's ostracized. She's alienated. She's a pariah in her community. And the language Jesus uses to address her is the language of family. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus speak to someone and use the word daughter. He references a woman in the synagogue uh, as being a daughter of Abraham. But here, it's a vocative address, right? He says, daughter. What is Jesus saying about his relationship with her? It's not severed. In fact, it's closer than she could possibly realize He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then notice, go in peace. 
without guilt, without shame. In fact, the word in uh, Hebrew, shalom, the concept in the Jewish mind is a whole lot more than a cessation of conflict. It's full and abundant flourishing. It's restoration. You see, a second reason I would suggest that Jesus does this publicly is because now publicly, everybody has an understanding of the transition of this woman's life from unhealed and unclean to healed and clean. Here, everybody, because imagine what it's like. What if she shows up at the synagogue and says, I've been healed? It's suspect. And it's also super awkward and invasive for her to prove it. Jesus provides an opportunity here for the restoration into the community publicly. You touched me because of your faith you've been healed. Go in peace, restored. He does something similar with a leper who comes to him. Like an issue of blood, like a flow of blood, like hemorrhaging, leprosy was something that caused ostracization. Okay? It was so contagious and such a good picture of sin and the corruption it wreaks in our lives that lepers were kept at a distance. And so what does Jesus tell the leper when he heals him? He says, go to the priest. Go through the process of cleansing. Okay? Because that leper needs more than just physical healing. He needs restoration to community. So does this woman. Then there's a third reason. Because any moment now, one of Jairus' servants is going to come forward. And he's going to say it's too late. It's interesting, actually, how much points of comparison there are between this woman and Jairus' daughter. Okay, first off, as we just saw, Jesus identifies this woman as daughter. Okay, second, this woman's condition has lasted for 12 years. Look at the end of the story here. In verse 42, speaking of Jairus' daughter, immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 12 and 12. Why? Why does Mark find this significant? Maybe it's because Jairus did. Okay, he, the woman comes, she bears her whole heart, and she says, for 12 years, he hears this word daughter, all of these things. Here's the thing. This woman has desperate and dire circumstances. She's exhausted all medical possibilities. Society has given up on her and put distance at her. And Jesus works. It's preparatory for the faith of Jairus because things are about to get hard. Now, all of these reasons that we're talking about are why it's so important for us to bring the things Jesus does in our life, which often involve shame, even if Jesus has dealt with it, right out into the open. Have you ever heard someone share the story of what Jesus did in their life and you're like, I can't believe he just confessed to all that. I don't even think the statute of limitations is up on some of those things he just mentioned, right? Or you think, I can't believe anyone would publicly identify themselves and self-condemn themselves as being such a horrible person. Okay. One of the reasons we do so is because we really understand the transition that happens in the gospel. We really understand what it is that Jesus has given us and how significant it is. And so those things no longer have teeth in our own lives. We're no longer embarrassed of them because they're no longer us. But another reason we share those things, consider Paul. Okay. If you were the number one representative of Christianity in a world that thought Christianity was suspect, and you're touring over all of Rome trying to explain what Jesus did, 
do you think he would explain, yeah, I actually used to murder Christians? But Paul always does so. He always mentions it. In fact, he says, it makes me unworthy to even be one of the apostles. In fact, I'm the least of all Christians because I persecuted the church. Why does he lower his reputation before he gets up and speaks? Why does he discount himself before the crowds? He tells us in uh, one of the Timothy letters, he says uh, effectively that Jesus saved him as the chief of sinners. And the Greek word there is protos, where we get the word prototype. Basically, Paul's perspective is if Jesus can save someone like me, the doors are open. Anybody, anybody Jesus can reach if he could reach me. And so there's value to the exposure that comes with sharing for ourselves. And then there's the community fact as well. The thing is, even if you have no secrets with God, even if every closet of your life has been emptied out and there is full forgiveness and full righteousness because of your trust in Jesus Christ, even if God has healed you from some embarrassing reality that stands in your context, Not sharing all of who you are with other people is distance. It's hiding. It's secrets. And I think every one of us knows what it's like to fence the things we're afraid that will get out. Everyone knows what it's like to not be too vulnerable because it might be the wrong question that gets asked. So where were you for those few years? Or so, you know, why do you have this? Or why do you have to do that? Or why are you going over there? Remember, for some people who become Christians, they may have set up families like franchises across the U.S. There's a whole lot of things to hide. Jesus is not judgmental. He's forgiving. But people, people are. And this sounds contradictory. But when we bring those things into the light and we put them in the context of what Jesus does, we align ourselves with the family that God has given us. As just another sinner, Jesus is saved. We find ourselves in good company. And so he does all these things for the sake of the woman, for the sake of the crowds, for the sake of Jairus. He does all these things, but remember, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. What is he thinking about during this time? Is he in a mood that is reflective? Is he pondering the theological significance of this? Is he rejoicing in this miraculous work that Jesus has just done for this woman? He's got a one-track mind. He's in a hurry. Fear is racking his brain. He is desperate. And all he can think about is his little daughter. And notice verse 35. While he was still speaking. While this is happening. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Too late. It's over. It wasn't fast enough. You see, for the woman, the impossibility is a track record. Years and years of effort. And let's be honest. Do you think this woman has never prayed to God to fix her condition? Twelve years of unanswered prayer of spending every expense to try and find health, of allowing doctors to try experimental procedures that just made things worse, right? That's what the text says. 
She's been working on this. She's 12 years in. She's desperate. And it's easy, isn't it, when you have 12 years of contrary experience to go, it's over. Nothing can happen. I might as well just settle. This is the way it is. But for Jairus, it's different. It's not history and experience. It's too late. It's too late. There's, there's nothing left to be done. His well-meaning housemates say, don't bother Jesus anymore. Why trouble him any further? There's, there's no point in, in bringing him, release him to do something else, come back to the funeral. Think of what Jairus would be thinking in these moments as memories and ideas and concepts and anger and fear flash through his mind. Of course he's thinking, if only, if only he just hurried. If only circumstances were different. If Jesus would have just, you know, he right now is feeling, I imagine, let down, disappointed, crushed. Look at verse 36. It says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said, that word there for overhearing is a very particular word. Most of the time it's used in old Greek letters, it's translated ignoring. Jesus hears this, but he doesn't receive it. And he turns to the man and he says, do not fear, only believe. Now, if you've been paying attention for the last few weeks, that's a pretty good summary for everything we've seen, right? When the disciples are caught in the storm, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus rebukes the storm and he turns to them and he says, why were you so afraid? You have little faith. Okay. In the last story, when Jesus does this healing uh, of this demonic man and it drives uh, the spirits into pigs and then drives the pigs into the ocean and it says the people heard about what Jesus had done and they were afraid. And here... He recognizes the temptation to fear, the fear that it's too late. And he says, only believe. Now, I want to make something clear here. This is not belief as an all-powerful reality. This is not some sort of positivism. This is not just hold your breath and hold out because everything's going to be fine. This is directly tied to Jesus, right? The significance of Jairus' faith the significance of this woman's faith is who they place it in. The woman has an ignorant faith. She's, she doesn't know how ready and willing Jesus is. She doesn't know that even though he is more than she thinks he is, not just a respectable rabbi, but the living, holy God in the flesh, the same one that needed the ritual code in the Old Testament. She doesn't know those things. She doesn't know that Jesus in that holiness isn't made unclean but makes unclean things clean. It's just a little faith. This is why Jesus says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, just you know, two-tenths of a gram, you can move mountains. It's not about how much faith you have. It's who you place it in. I use this illustration all the time. But if you were terrified of bridges and you go to the Golden Gate Bridge and you shake and on your hands and knees cross it and it takes you weeks, it doesn't change the strength of the bridge. It doesn't bother the bridge at all. The expression of faith in crossing it is the crossing of it even if you do it on your hands and knees. 
Even if you have to say like one man does to Jesus on an occasion, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not that Jesus isn't worthy of stable, consistent, permanent, and full-hearted faith. He is. But Jesus meets us where we're at. And so he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And I want you to hear the pronoun at the end of that. Just believe in me. That's what makes the difference here. And so, verse 37 He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Remember, he's in a huge crowd right here. He's not going to cram them into this little girl's bedroom where she's laying dead and her parents are grieving. And so he draws a line and he says, you can follow me no further. And then he just takes some of his disciples, not all of them, just Peter, James, and John, and he says, you come with me. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, most likely, this is more than just a family overcome with grief. These are professional mourners, okay? It was Jewish custom to hire flute players and wailers to attend your funeral. It was, it was just part of how they went about funerals, okay? In fact, that explains what happens next, because notice, Jesus sees them, verse 39, he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. How do they throw that switch so quickly? From weeping and wailing to laughing. This is their job. In fact, it's that job that provides their realistic cynicism. They've been on a lot of funerals. They just knocked over Bonnie Watson, the funeral parlor that was right across the park here. That was the longing longest standing continuous business license in Seattle. Why? Because death is an ever-present reality for us as human beings, even in wonderful Seattle. These people know their job. They know what's possible. They've been here before. They know what dead looks like, and that daughter is dead. And don't misunderstand Jesus here. He's not saying everybody's mistaken the diagnosis. He's also not saying, you think that she's dead, but sleep is a better description for what happens to, that doesn't make any sense either. The reason he uses sleep here is because what's just happened to this daughter is temporary. You might as well consider it a nap. It's a death nap, but it's going to end in just a minute here. But here's the thing. Fear is one thing that hinders us from faith. Cynicism is another. There is only one word in the English language that I always associate with unbelief. It's the word never. When we tell God what he can't do, we forget that with God all things are possible. We put ourselves on the throne of the universe and say, we dictate the rules, we oversee them, and we know that this is undoable, and I need you to understand that cynicism runs deep in the human heart, at least in the modern world. We're very quick to give up on things. We're very quick to write things off. We're very quick to settle. And that enters into our relationship with Jesus. It enters into the way we think about God. We say, God, I'll pray about all these things because these are still possibilities. But the impossible ones, what's the point? Here, a woman lies dead in a bed. And Jesus rebukes them for their cynicism. 
And so, verse 40, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went there in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi. That's Aramaic. Our text this morning is written in Greek. But here, uh, Mark takes the time to use the language that Jesus actually spoke. Okay? And that's not because it's some sort of magical incantation for raising the dead. It's because... Peter, who's providing this perspective, was present in the room, and this stood out to him. In fact, notice how tender the words are coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's literally translated, Mark tells us, little girl, arise. And he just speaks to her. Verse 42, and immediately, it's the second time we've seen that word in this, right? The woman touches her, touches the hem of his garden, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. Here, Jesus speaks to the girl, doesn't even touch her, and immediately she began, got up and began walking, for she was 12 years uh, overcome, and then one last time, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Why? It's pretty obvious, right? Jesus has just done the impossible. There's no category for this. There's no place for this. Listen, Mark doesn't record this story because it's sensational. In fact, if Jesus wanted sensation, he would have done things differently, right? Why does he send the crowd away? Why does he limit those who are occupied? Look at what he says next. After the girl is up, verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This story isn't proclaimed from the rooftops in Jesus. He doesn't put it on his resume, right? It's not until after Jesus has accomplished his mission, he's died, he's buried, he's resurrected, and he sends out the apostles that they begin to tell this story fully and completely. The time has not yet come. This isn't about sensation. The story is recorded so that we would know who Jesus is. And my challenge to you this morning would be how long is your list of things you've surrendered to fear or cynicism or move to the impossible box? Listen, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no saying, well, those are the things Jesus did, but he doesn't do those things anymore. Now, I want to be clear here. God doesn't always heal. But I also want to be clear that he always answers prayer. G. Campbell Morgan is a Bible teacher who's been of great influence to me. Um, If you're familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a little bit better known, G. Campbell Morgan was his predecessor. He's the one who raised up Martin Lloyd-Jones and taught in the pulpit before him. he, told, he says in a sermon on this passage that this passage has always had particular significance for him uh, because his 11-year-old daughter uh, was dying in bed and it drove him to pray. And he read this passage and it was that line, do not fear, only believe, that stood out to him. And his daughter died. And he says, but still those words ring true in my ears and I hold on to them every day and I stand on them because one day I will see my daughter again. And so I need not be afraid, only believe. 
I want for us as a church, I want for me, myself, to really believe in Jesus. To know that those things that are impossible with men are possible with God because all things are possible with God. To know that the things that are going on in our life, big or small, difficult or minimal, those things in our life that have been persistent and present realities for so long that they just feel like the new normal. I want to know that those are the places where Jesus can work. I want to take the places of desperation in my life and use it to plumb the depths of God's goodness. If you're not a Christian this morning, one thing that I want to exhort you towards, many people come to Jesus for many reasons. Like Jairus here, it's not because he understands who Jesus is, it's just there's a possibility of fixing of the problem. And sometimes we just find ourselves out of our depths and we go, maybe Jesus can do something. Take a lesson from the woman this morning. Don't allow yourself to get the gift and then walk away from the giver. Don't settle for the fixing of the problem you have and not know the Redeemer who can fix everything. One of the reasons Jesus stops this woman is so that she won't just leave healed, but in a relationship with her Savior. God doesn't work in our lives just because he loves us. He works in our lives to show us who he is because he wants to be in relationship with us. So don't settle. Don't stop. Don't walk away. Don't treat God like he's, you know, that uh, elderly grandmother who bails you out of circumstances, but you only call when things are bad. Because the thing is, Jesus is so much more than a problem solver. Jesus is the one who loves us so much that he took our greatest need, our greatest problem, and without us asking, became a man, lived the life of obedience we cannot live, died the death that we all deserve, took care of the entire bill without us asking, and then freely says, come, enter back into relationship. Come, know me. Come, live life with me. Come, let me show you what life is really about. Let me offer you freedom and abundant life and peace and purpose and all these things. But most importantly, come, let me show you me. Come that you might be where I am. Come that you might know me. Come that me might, we might be in relationship. Everything that Jesus does in this story is bound up in that reality. Why does he delay? It's not just because there's another need. There were probably other needs in the crowd. He delays so Jairus would know who Jesus really is. The one who raises the dead. Let's pray.